0: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where we ignore the grown-ups in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about Minute 37, which begins with Zeta and Big Rebecca continuing to shout from atop the bus gate, and it ends with Max reaching into his jacket. One of the very last things we saw yesterday was Zeta getting up and shouting, Look, if we walk out there, they'll slaughter us. And the second half of his line comes today where he says, they'll set us loose and then cut us down like pigs.
1: I find this line to be very interesting because at the end of last minute, I thought that was the end of his sentence. It was the end of a sentence. The sentence didn't need any more to prove the point, but yet he goes on and makes the point, two more times in the same sentence
0: Mm. he takes his initial statement of they're going to kill us and then he doubles down on that idea and says they're not just going to kill us they're going to slaughter us and it's going to be a bloodbath big rebecca does not like this
1: oh she is so enthusiastic
0: she makes fists with her hands and she pleads with the compound don't listen to them and it's very forceful
1: a point that i made yesterday about them acting on a stage like they are theater acting oh yeah that rebecca is still doing that she is still up on top of that bus She is acting with her whole body
0: yeah she's doing that thing we call playing to the cheap seats she's making sure that her movements are large and overblown so that even the people sitting on the way other side of the compound will you know pipe up and listen
1: and actually Papagallo's is kind of sitting way on the other side of the compound. He's kind of his perch is kind of in the middle of the compound way up high.
0: Yeah, he's definitely not close by.
1: If she's talking to the group and Papagallo, then she does need to make sure they can hear her clearly. Yeah. And her full-throated yelling, how clear she is and how easily understood she is is really good.
0: It's definitely going to benefit the other people standing up on that bridge with Papagallo. I'm pretty sure there's still someone at the very top of that lookout to- tower
1: who probably has like no idea what's happening because he can only hear some people talking and he can could probably couldn't hear anything what the horde was saying yeah watching a scene unfold with no context
0: yeah being that high up he could probably hear a little bit of the loudspeaker but i mean everything I else very clearly it's just a whole bunch of
1: yeah you know. except rebecca i'll bet he could hear her crystal yeah. clearly yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: While Zeta and Big Rebecca are going back and forth in the front of the camp from stage right in storms the curmudgeon and he has traded in my notes say his grandpa joe style get up (laughs) with his pajamas and like blanket that he had wrapped around him when they were standing up on the wall he has traded that in for a metal helmet and a blazer that he has just put on over his pajamas and he's got these tall like calf length boots and a sword stuck into a belt like he's he's a man dressed to the nines going to war but what he's saying is a little bit different than how he's dressed he's not going to war he's coming out and says all right all right this is it i'll talk to this humongous you dress for war and you come out talking about diplomacy and i'm like okay i guess you want to dress for the position you want and not the position you have so he wants to put on an air of authority Authority. but it was just kind of funny that he dressed like a soldier to make a plea for peace (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah he reminds me of admiral boom from mary poppins
0: okay remind me
1: okay so mary poppins their next door neighbor is admiral boom okay whose favorite thing to do is to hang out on his rooftop and every hour on the hour set off a cannon to mark the hour
0: mary poppins takes place like in the middle of london yeah
1: exactly exactly
0: so is this dude like launching and like just launching blanks is he just doing it for Not sound really. or is he like fine like i've never like paid that close of attention
1: i don't think he's actually firing cannonballs okay I think he's just setting off a boom. Like when they do the 1812 Overture Yeah, at the Boston Pops. They're not actually firing a cannon. Yeah. They're just making the boom. I looked up Admiral Boom, and he's got a fantastic quote, and I will post the YouTube video to our listeners page, because it's just so wonderful. He says, we're being attacked by Hottentots, the Cheeky Devils. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Ah, I just love it. Okay, the context is it's the end of this scene with uh, the chimney sweeps dancing on the roofs. Okay. And he's witnessing this, and he assumes that they are being attacked. <laughs>
0: By Hottentots. One thing I can never keep straight with that musical number: Are they saying "stepping time" as in it is time for stepping, or are they saying "step, step in, in time", time as, as in, in, in dancing, dance coordinatedly, or I dance think, in a coordinated manner? I
1: think it's <laughs> the second one. They're they're stepping in time because the dance numbers are very organized. Like they they're dancing in a line, all doing the same steps, mm. or they're dancing in a formation, all doing the same steps so i think it's step in time
0: okay yeah i have a feeling that you've you've got this old military dude who likes firing cannons off of his roof and he sees a bunch of chimney sweeps dancing in formation and waving around their uh Chimney sweeping brooms I'm assuming they're called. He'll probably get some flashbacks to the Mary Poppins era London equivalent of Nam.
1: So they're both you know the curmudgeon and Admiral Broom they're both this random military man in amongst a story that has nothing to do with military.
0: Now as he is walking through the compound you can see that he's not necessarily wearing an, a military coat per se. He kind of strikes me as a thrift store military uniform type of thing. The pattern on the jacket looks like just a blazer, but he's got some medals on there, and I was able to identify at least three of them. There's a website called MedalsGoneMissing.com that helps families of service members find the medals that their family members lost. Because sometimes these things get misplaced. Sometimes they get destroyed. Right. And, you know, if you served your time and you did your duty, you can get replacements of medals.
1: Yeah. And And I I know that... I don't know about, like, special awards, like a Purple Heart. I don't know about that where you're actually presented with a medal. But my dad was in the Navy, and when he earned a medal, he had to go buy it to put it on his uniform. So the medal itself was more about what's on your record than having this, a piece of metal or Mm -hmm. a ribbon.
0: So the nice thing about this website is that it had a picture guide Mm, to the different medals that, you know, a service member from the Australian Armed Forces would have on his jacket. So I was able to identify the three rightmost medals. I wasn't able to identify the three leftmost medals, so I'm going to need some help from the listeners on this one. The first medal on the rightmost part was the 1939 to 1945 star, and that was awarded for anyone that served between September 1939 and September 1945. The next star in is the Africa Star, which was awarded for a minimum of one day's service in an operational area of North Africa between June 1940 and May 1943. Members of the AIF qualified for the Star for service in Syria from the 8th of June 1941 to the 11th of July 1941. The final starred medal is actually the Italy Star, which was awarded for operational service on land in Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia, Pantelleria, the Aegean area and Dodecanese Islands and Elba at any time between June 1943 and May 1945. Eligibility requirements varied for our members of the Royal Navy, the Merchant Navy, the Air Force, but that's the generic guidelines. Those ones were easy because they had very specific star shapes and you can go from the colors of the ribbon from there. The three on the left, however, were harder to pin down because the picture guide wasn't complete there were a lot of open gaps Mm -hmm. where just pictures were not there and so i was kind of narrowing in on a couple of different ones that they could have been but i didn't want to say it was one type of metal and have it be another type because metals are important recognition is important and i didn't want to get it wrong so listeners call to action if you have really keen eyes and you can see one of those metals what they are Please jump on the listener's page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone on Facebook, and help us fill out the identification for those medals. If you look at those first three on the right and you see something different, please let me know that as well. I'm very interested to find out what these are, because from what you can see hanging on the curmudgeon's jacket here, he's a World War II veteran.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because... That is the correct time period for the actor. But in universe, we really have no idea what year it is, but we know it's sometime in the future
0: mm-hmm.
1: from 1980-ish.
0: Right. <laughs> so
1: it's still so really hard to tell what year it is.
0: Yeah, it's hard to imagine a World War II veteran specifically still being spry enough in today's age 15 years after the millennium roughly but you can imagine if these medals were in heavy circulation if he wasn't the world war ii veteran maybe someone in his family was
1: yeah maybe they've been handed down maybe he was a veteran and he earned similar medals Mm -hmm. and lost them and found these medals and kind of use these medals, which he w- in that case he wouldn't know what they meant, but use them to replace things that he know he did earn. Yeah, or he knows he did earn.
0: Or he could just be one of those people that see medals and like having them on his jacket. I imagine there's probably not as dedicated of a base of. I think it's called stolen valor when someone <sighs> yes. goes around wearing a uniform or medals that they did not earn.
1: Yeah, that's kind of why I'm I'm trying to give him credit for earning medals in general. Yeah. Maybe not these specific ones, but earning medals in general, because that's not as bad as never having served and wearing medals. Yeah, I think... Or wearing a uniform.
0: Given the nebulous nature of what year this movie takes place in, it's kind of hard to say, yes, this guy was definitely a World War II veteran or or what the exact nature of it is. I'm sure there's no one that's going to run up on the compound see him wearing that jacket and say, hey, you didn't earn those.
1: I suspect, given the DIY appearance of his jacket in general that he's trying to recreate something he used to have. Yeah. He used to be a military man. He wore the uniform. He earned the medals. And this is his best facsimile.
0: And if this is so far down the timeline that he wasn't the specific person to hold onto that medal, a coat with service medals pinned onto it is one of those family heirloom things that people would pack up and carry with them as they're fleeing civilization Mm -hmm. because it's a very important family heirloom so even if he wasn't the one if we've gone so far into some time from now that he is a son or grandson of someone who served in world war ii he would have that jacket and say oh well you know this is my my grandpa or my father's jacket and this is very important and gives me an air of authority so i'm going to hold on to it and wear it yeah it is kind of funny to see him storm back onto the scene because the last time we saw him, he was standing at the edge of the wall. He had that really worried expression on his face. He turned around and walked, and away. walked and, away. And walked away and now this we know is why. how he re-enters. <laughs> he was going to dress up and get, get his game clothes on.
1: So he, he wants to go negotiate further with Lord Humongous and I'm again baffled. The same thing with Rebecca. I'm baffled at how much faith they are putting into Lord Humongous. Right. Why are you giving him so much credit?
0: As soon as the curmudgeon comes back into the scene Big Rebecca climbs down from on top of the bus to go in amongst the crowd to meet up with the curmudgeon you can kind of hear it in the background as the curmudgeon is walking in and he says he's going to go talk to the humongous someone in the crowd unidentified Mm -hmm. compound dweller Calls him a bloody fool. (laughs) And the curmudgeon goes on to say, he's a reasonable man, open to negotiation. And then Rebecca comes right up next to him and says, he promised us safe passage. He gave his word. And I think they're the kind of people where they're listening to the verbiage that the Lord Humongous is using. They're listening to his speech pattern, his eloquence. And they're setting up a, I would say, false equivalency of eloquence to sincerity they think that because he is speaking in a very measured and civilized tone that that alone makes him trustworthy and i kind of feel like that's why they are so adamant about him being a reasonable man
1: you can behave or speak like a reasonable man and not actually be a reasonable man
0: yeah it's called politics
1: right (laughs) like that is one of the easiest things to fake i was thinking about Why they would do that, why they would put so much trust in Humongous based on one speech. And I think we get a clue in Papagallo and his argument opposing Rebecca and in the way that that speech is treated throughout the rest of this minute and then into tomorrow's minute. Mm -hmm. So he starts the speech in this minute and then we cut away to a completely different scene for a long time, which we will talk more about. But then tomorrow we cut back to his speech. It's clear that we have missed a big chunk of it. And he goes on to talk about how gas is a lifeline out of the wasteland and they need to defend it and things like that. So we have missed a large chunk of the speech, which means he's been talking for a while. Oh, yeah. I think that Rebecca and the curmudgeon and the group are are conditioned to listen to speeches, to take those speeches to heart. Now, I'm not a gigantic fan of Papagallo. He hasn't proved himself to me personally yet. I don't know what the future will hold on that front, but right now, I don't really care for him. But the people seem to have a great deal of faith in him. Right. So they listen to this long speech that he gives, and I think in the past, he's given speeches and it's worked.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think he might have almost a finite amount of pull with these people. And, and he's, he's reaching the end. Yeah, he's given speech after speech after inspiring speech. Right. And...
1: And in the past, those speeches have been correct. He's been able to follow through on what he's been saying. So they're conditioned that now they see Lord Humongous has given this lovely speech, so they are conditioned to believe him.
0: <laughs> I love that idea. That they just have this Pavlovian response almost, where they yeah, hear long speech and then think okay i trust this guy
1: right if they've never been let down by a quote unquote politician i make that comparison in my notes for tomorrow's minute then why would they think that they might be let down by this new one
0: as fun as it is to talk about papagallo talking to the compound dwellers however right around second 26 frame 14 we cut away from the adults oh my gosh (laughs) and we
1: I hate this scene so much. We
0: rejoin Max sitting by the railing that he was handcuffed to and the feral child pops out of the little rabbit hole. Papagallo is like you said Still talking. still
1: talking but we don't care
0: there is more of this speech that exists that we don't even hear the subtitles that pop up the the official closed captions stop following him altogether Uh huh. so there is an entire i feel like it's a one minute chunk maybe even more than Ugh, a minute because felt we like don't, more than a minute we don't cut back to papagallo until over 35 seconds into tomorrow's minute yeah So we spend over a minute with just Feral Child, Max, and just shot, reverse shot of the two of them.
1: I do love, 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 love that Max still hasn't moved. Yes, he unlocked himself, but you can see the handcuffs Still on the railing right next to him. He didn't move. He just uncuffed himself. He has no reason to leave his position. Cause you know what? For right now, they have forgotten about him and he likes it that way.
0: Yeah. He doesn't need to do anything to inadvertently agitate them.
1: Cause at this point, they have no reason to think that he isn't one of the Horde. Mm-hmm. They still haven't like had a conversation with him where he can clarify that he is an independent entity. He's not part of the Horde. Logically, they probably still think he is. So if they remembered about him, they'll probably like want to do like a hostage trade or something. <laughs> Which bad news for Max.
0: There's no way that the Humongous would look at him and say, oh yeah, he's definitely someone I want to trade a hostage for. Plus then Max would be in the clutches of the Lord Humongous. Yep. Which wouldn't be any better.
1: I'd be dead that way too. So, well, no, pro- actually probably not. Ma- Max would probably figure out a way to stay alive and escape. Because he's Max. He's mm-hmm. clever.
0: He's crafty like that. Yeah. Feral Child, like I said, crawls out from underneath the structure of the wall. He gives this look to Max that seems to me like the Feral Child is scrutinizing him. He's yeah. like giving him a look as if he's not quite sure what to think of him because he was outside the wall when max drove up and he was right there when max pulled nathan out of the car and they walked in together and he's been keeping a very close eye on this mysterious leather-clad stranger and of course max is looking down at the feral child with i would say indifference
1: Yeah, his classic no expression. Yeah. Because Max doesn't give anything away.
0: I mean, the feral child, on the other hand, is much more expressive. I will give Emil Minty that. As an eight-year-old, he's able to use his face to emote and do things with that character that don't require dialogue. It would be kind of nice if we got some dialogue, something more than just this weird little pantomime that we get, but we do get, you know, that scrutinizing look and then... We get a shot of Max, and we cut back to the feral child, and he picks up his boomerang and he waves, waves it around it, a little like,
1: bit. Was he miming throwing it? Like, kind of looked. Hey, like did, you, that. did you see me throw it? Wasn't yeah. that pretty cool? Yeah, I'm not. That's kind of sure. what I got out of that.
0: I'm not quite sure if it's a, look at what I did, wasn't it cool, or if it was a, look at what I did, if you caused trouble, this will be
1: Oh, yeah, you that next makes time. Sense.
0: It's hard for me to decide which one it is, because...
1: Is he at the point yet where he wants to impress Max, or is he still at the point where he mm-hmm. wants to... Keep him con- at arm's length. And- right, and control him.
0: Yeah. Let I- him
1: know that... He's got his eye on you.
0: I feel like he's not threatening Max because he doesn't have an expression of aggression
1: No, per se.
0: I think it's more of a, look at all the blood on my boomerang, huzzah, type Mm of expression.
1: I mentioned earlier that I dislike this scene. I'm not really a 100% sure why I dislike this scene so much. George Miller has proved in an entire movie that we enjoyed very much, Mad Max 79 that you do not need dialogue to make a good movie or an interesting scene. So that's not what's wrong with it. And there is some silent communication going back and forth, although Max really isn't participating in that very much. It's really the feral child. Max doesn't start to participate until next minute. Right. I think it just takes too long. Yeah. I think it's just too long. It's
0: just a little slow. Yes. They spend more time looking at the feral child than they do looking at Max. The shots of Max specifically run around like two, two and a half seconds each. The feral child gets a lot more screen time. Mm-hmm. in the second half of this minute, probably because he's actually moving around. But the last, oh, five, six seconds of this minute is Max looking down at the boy, and then he goes to reach into his jacket. And we're going to see what he pulls out tomorrow. Yep. But it kind of makes me wonder, since that fateful day on the highway just outside of May Swayze's farm, has he really interacted with another child? I kind of feel like the answer is no.
1: I think no is entirely possible,
0: I feel like this is the first instance that he's been put in a one-on-one situation where Mm -hmm. it's just him and a kid, and not just a kid, a little boy, kind of calling back to the fact that he lost his own son. And even if, when you talk about campfire theory, maybe this didn't chronologically happen right after Mad Max 79.
1: Maybe his son, maybe Sprague would have been about eight.
0: Exactly. This could be quite a long time, and there could have been other instances, but this is the first one that we're seeing, so this is the one that we're focusing on. It must be so strange for Max to be confronted with a child that Sprague could have grown up into. Now, I imagine Jesse probably would not have allowed Sprague to grow up feral. (laughs) Like this boy is.
1: Kids are kids.
0: Exactly. Max sees in the feral child, even if it's just a tiny bit, the idea of lost potential. Max being so well-practiced at masking his emotions, I feel like one of the reasons why he is so stoic is probably because he's trying to keep all of that buried deep. And not let any of it come out, because it would be terribly inconvenient for him to drop his guard out in the wasteland, because it's very dangerous.
1: Maybe that's why the scene takes so long, is because Max needs time to internalize interacting with this child, and he needs time to make the decision to give him a gift, which is what we're going to see tomorrow.
0: Yeah. We don't see Max interacting at all this minute, and I like that idea that you just brought up, the idea that he kind of needs time to warm up to the idea of Mm -hmm. even interacting at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Because
0: this minute, it's entirely just him looking at the feral child and the feral child doing actions that kind of reach out to Max. And so it takes almost that half a minute entirely, which in the grand scheme of the movie, not that long, but in the context of watching the movie minute by minute.
1: It's a very long time. It's a very
0: long time. Tomorrow, like I said earlier, we're going to see him actually do something to interact with this child. You'll want to come back tomorrow and uh, catch up with us for that. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow
0: Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of danielbautista.com.
1: You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at madmaxminute.com.
0: And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full.
1: Thank you for joining us for a minute. 37 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.